0: Welcome to Creating Wealth Through Passive Apartment Investing Podcast. In this show, we will discuss about best and worst experiences about passive and active apartment investing. And I am your host, Ramakrishna. Let's begin the show. Today's our guest is Anton Matley from Peak Financing. Welcome, Anton. Thanks for having me, Rama. Thanks for being on the show. A little bit about Anton, Peak Financing CEO Anton Matley. Has decades of experience in commercial and investment banking, private equity, and commercial real estate. After graduating from Zurich Business School in banking and finance, he held senior management positions at major financial institutions in New York, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Zurich. Over the last 15 years, Hanton has been advising family offices, high net worth individuals, as well as private investment funds, facilitating their direct investments in commercial real estate across Europe and the United States, including several hundred million dollars in multifamily developments and acquisitions. With that Anton, would you like to add anything to your background?
1: No, I appreciate it, Rama. I think you explained it well. Right Again, my strange accent is from Switzerland. So even though I have been living in Dallas and operating out of Dallas as a hub for the United States, I was born in Switzerland, grew up in Switzerland. But uh, right after school, shortly afterwards, I went to New York, worked there for five years and then in Asia in Tokyo and Hong Kong for almost eight years. And uh, now I'm, I'm in Texas for the last, Roughly 15 years, and we cover essentially all of the United States when it comes to commercial real estate, including multifamily financing. Awesome! So, how did you get into lending world? Well, uh, right after school, I have a degree in finance. Right after school, I started with a bank called UBS Today, which is a global uh, Swiss-based investment uh, bank. And that's how I came into contact with uh, commercial real estate. I started out out of school with uh, restructuring commercial real estate in New York uh, in the early 90s when there was a lot of restructuring that had to be done of the fallout from the savings and loan crisis uh, from the late 80s. And that included multiple commercial properties and portfolios from shopping malls to office buildings. Multifamily was not as affected back then. There were only some, some issues there, but uh, a big chunk of, of what was in distress was only shopping malls and office buildings. And again, that's kind of interesting to see that in back then right? everyone obviously now talks about the death of, of retail and all that but the reality is already in the late 80s and the early 90s there was a massive overhang of retail and large, large shopping malls so it's uh, essentially it has after everything went back to normal for a couple of decades it has caught up with us again obviously this time it's very different because of the technology changes that uh, shop are going through.
0: Awesome. So and you have vast experience in the lending industry. So would you like to share any of your experiences and few highlights in each decade?
1: Yes. uh, So I have been uh, involved on the lending side with all the major asset classes, right? I mentioned shopping malls, office buildings, and some of the highlights only were during that restructuring phase that's right out of the gate. Essentially, when I was tossed into it is that never think that uh, values only go up right value destroying element that we uh, have experienced that we had experienced back then was very severe and we also have seen situations where groups and individuals bought properties out of distress and thought that they got a good deal and later on they realized that they're still overpaid right and we saw that uh, in the doing that phase uh, in the early 90s that out of the fallout from the savings and loan crisis. But we saw it again, even in 2010 and 11, when people still were willing to buy out properties and thought that they were getting them at, at a very good price. And that was but particularly the case in 2009, I would say. And then they realized that they're still overpaid and they actually had to sell them again for a loss in 2011 and 12 and 13. So it's kind of a warning I would like to give, right? Uh, you never really know where, where a price is going to settle once the market turns uh, the other way. Right.
0: Okay, awesome.
1: Yeah. So now on the positive side, obviously, is that when you buy at the right price point. It is, uh, and as you know, many syndicators today and other investors that have uh, started to invest in in multifamily in 2010, 11, and 12, and all the way over then the following years. Uh, They were in a very good position because the market moved them up. So they had all the the wind from the back and that helped them a lot. And even the ones that were not really that good at it, they were still very successful because of the market essentially supporting them massively and allowing significant mistakes. On the financing side, back then it was for a period, it was really tough to get financing for most commercial real estate. As we see it today with COVID 19, multifamily had the advantage to have access to agency lending. Until that point, agencies were not as strong of a player when it came to multifamily, but this only stepped in big time. And as we see today, again, with COVID-19, the agencies have once again been able to essentially support the multifamily market, whereas in all the other commercial real estate asset classes, we still see a significant gap when it comes to lending. Choices. So, here again, right, it's kind of a history repeats itself where we see that multifamily is definitely the asset class, thanks to the agencies that make it m- much easier to find financing, even during relatively tough times.
0: Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So, your company finances to which real estate asset classes?
1: We finance all commercial real estate that is with a value roughly of a, a million and a half and up. We focus on mostly on loan amounts that are at least 1 million. I would say most of the transactions we do are 2 million, 3 million and up. And that, apart from multifamily, it includes uh, sub-asset classes for multifamily, whether it's senior housing, student housing, mobile home parks, assisted living, and so on. And we also cover offices, retail, hospitality. Right now, particularly retail, and even more so on the hospitality side, it's extremely difficult to get financing in place. But there are always opportunities for players that have the ability to bring significant amount of equity to the table to get financing done at a relatively uh, low leverage right
0: okay yes and your company focus on any specific markets
1: no we cover all, uh, most of the United States we essentially go where our clients go right so it kind of shifts depending on where our clients are the most active uh, in obviously when you look back specifically talking about indicators it's not for for all the investors but just uh, talking about indicators in you are active in that segment. So only Dallas and Texas, Dallas-Fort Worth and Texas as a whole were kind of the starting point in multifamily syndication. Right? And as the prices moved up in Dallas-Fort Worth, some of the more experienced syndicators decided to seek out opportunities in other markets. And as that has happened, obviously, we move with these clients to other markets. And that is also applicable to non-syndicator clients we help, uh, whether they're private individuals or families or also institutional type of investors. It happens on a regular basis that they decide that the portfolio is, is no longer or a market is no longer perfectly matching their future goals. So they sell in a particular market and shift it into a different one and we essentially follow where they are going.
0: Okay, great. So what is your lending criteria for financing a deal?
1: It naturally depends a lot on what type of a property it is. When it comes to multifamily, whether it's stabilized enough that it can fit into a, an agency loan, right? Uh, agency loans are definitely the most attractive non-recourse financing that is available. And when you talk about agencies, not just Fannie and Freddie, but also HUD loans, right? Uh, HUD loans take quite a while to get done, anywhere between six to twelve months, particularly with COVID-19, demand for those programs have shot up quite a bit. But outside of that, we can do bank loans or bridge loans, private loans that are kind of quasi-bridge lenders, um, a hybrid between bridge and hard money, if you want to call it that that way, for really tough transactions. And obviously, the terms vary quite a bit when it comes to the agency loans. They are in the major MSAs. still able to get all the way to up to 80% and 1.2 debt service coverage. In most instances, it's 1.25. And as you move into smaller markets, the leverage may come down to 75% and the debt service coverage moves up to maybe 1.3. And if it's a really small market, it might move up all the way to 1.4. Right? With HUD, you're still able to get up to above the 80 mark, 85% for an acquisition for a market rate property so it's still readily available very very attractive financing on the bridge side a lot of bridge lenders have stopped lending and the ones that are still active are much pickier because they know that they now have a choice of what they want to finance CMBS loans doesn't even matter what asset class it's very limited compared to pre-COVID similar to the bridge side on the CMBS side, unless you have a prearranged deal, usually very large deals that are still being done, it's much harder to get a CMBS loan into place. And compared to agency loans on for multifamily, where we still have that attractive financing available, it doesn't really make sense to even attempt a CMBS loan. And then the other alternative, if non-recourse if is acceptable, I would say banks tend to be very aggressive. We also have seen credit unions still being very attracted to to multifamily. So that option is also available. Obviously, the leverage there tends to be in the 70 to 75%. And the amortization, unfortunately, is also shorted between 20 and 25 years usually. But there are some credit unions we work with that actually are very aggressive. Some of them even with a lower leverage are willing to go non-recage. Course, so there are a lot of options out there that one has to consider. As a side note, with with uh, agencies right now, we still have the, the escrowing s growing of principal and interest anywhere between. If it's a low leverage, they waive it. But if it's uh, from a starting at the certain leverage, it's six months, and then can go up to twelve months for conventional loans. And for a smaller fanny loan, it still can be eighteen months. So that's one of the disadvantages of going with an agency loan, but it is just essentially a balancing act that one has to consider as a borrower or a new buyer of a property, whether one wants to go with one option versus another. I would say agencies are still attractive enough that there are still many borrowers that go down that road despite that principle and interest as growing requirement. Awesome. Thanks for sharing all information.
0: information. So how do you qualify an investor for these deals?
1: It varies. Uh, I would say there are two elements to it. One is the financial strength and the other one is the experience. Right? When it comes to the financial strength, net worth and liquidity are two crucial pieces. Typically, the requirement is that the net worth is equal or higher than the loan amount and the post-closing liquidity, meaning after all, the down payment that is contributed by by the sponsors of a deal and all the closing costs, that, that is. or more than the loan amount. For some programs, it's a little bit lower. But as a general rule, I would just use that 100% for net worth and 10% for for post-closing liquidity, as we call it. The beauty about this is is that you can combine the net worth and liquidity for multiple individuals, which is much better compared to the residential side, where everyone is their own warrior and you cannot really tap into a financial strength from someone else. Now, on the experience side, there are some loan programs where the experience is not that important and it can be mitigated with third-party property management. But only for conventional loans, they want to see experience in the multifamily space. With Freddy SPL, if someone lives close to, to the property and hires a third-party property management company, they may be able to, to get it done without any prior experience. But once you get into the larger deals and as we call them the conventional agency loans, you definitely need to show that experience. Again, the advantage is you can find a partner who might have that if you don't have it. When it comes to banks, they are definitely more flexible when it comes to the experience piece and sometimes also the financial strength.
0: Awesome, thanks for sharing. So would you share any of your best and worst experiences from lending side?
1: Obviously, everyone has war stories, right? Uh, on the worst side, I would say what what is always the scariest part for us is when a lender drops out at the last moment uh, for for any reason. And we have had uh, such situations in the past on on very few occasions, luckily, but it was usually driven by a misunderstanding of of the sponsorship group or misrepresentation by the sponsorship group of certain situations. So we have been able to overcome that situation after learning of these cases and having gone through these cases a long time ago by ensuring that we really understand what trigger points are for a particular lender to potentially, as we call it, retrade a deal, right? And we are doing the best that we are on top of it. And talking about the great experience or good experience, this is exactly where it then comes into play, right? We are approached on a regular basis with a situation where someone had a loan in place or thought that they had a loan in place, it fell through and they need help. And these are really the best experiences for us when we have a deal that needs to be rescued and we find a solution so that they still can close the loan. That is, I would say, gives us the, the biggest satisfaction because it's kind of that instant gratification we can create for, for our clients and since they usually have significant money at stake with particularly not now, but only pre-COVID in terms of hard money, that's always a great experience when we can help in these situations.
0: Cool. Thanks for sharing that. So, and what is your current focus and share something you're excited about now?
1: Well, I think uh, right now we've our focus is only more on the refinancing side rather than the acquisition side, right? Because uh, the volume of acquisitions has slowed down significantly in most asset classes. Naturally, hospitality and retail is virtually nil offices are very small, but also multifamily, the transaction volume has dropped uh, significantly. So our focus is right now more on the refinancing side. Opportunity-wise, I think 2021 will bring great opportunities for us on the financing side because I think there is a pent-up demand. There will be quite a large number of properties that need to be rescued that when all where as owners, current owners are willing to actually bring these properties to the market. They attempted to get them through the, the difficult times but have a harder time. So I think there will be direct from sellers as well as from, from lenders where mark where properties come to market. So I think there will be a lot of opportunities for, for buyers that are already. And even for non-distressed assets, I think there are quite a number of sellers that are now holding back because the want to see where the market all settles. And with that, with more sellers coming back to the market combined with buyers having that pent up demand, I think 2021 will create a very good opportunity for buyers that are are ready with the cash and their investment partners cool so one advice that impacted you I would say it's uh, focus on what is important and ignore the chatter right and that is actually an advice I received right out of school with one of my early mentors and back then remember that was in the early 90s there were no there was internet was in its infancy it was not really a an environment where everyone was communicating in social media so that chatter was there but it was much smaller and I would say that that advice is now more important today than ever right because you see so much chatter on Facebook on LinkedIn Twitter everywhere Instagram it you name it and even email so you can easily lose your focus because you're so distracted by all the chatter that this does not really matter to you your personal and financial success. Yeah, that's awesome advice. So
0: any of your personal habits that help you to be successful?
1: I would say it's effort, right? Just uh, uh, get things done, right? And be ready to get things done. I would say it was the main reason why I was successful in, in my banking career. And then after I I left in my personal investment as well as in, in the financing side when I started my own business. Good. Any one
0: book that impacted your
1: life on what way? I mean, there are, I would say, too many to list them all, right? Uh, I think one book that I, I really, I remember was uh, by Mark Cladwell is his name that I think it came out in the early 2000s. I'm not quite sure, but it was called The Tipping Point, which is essentially highlighting that just little things can have, have a massive impact. Right, and I think it's also highlighted the fact. Look, sometimes you overlook certain things. You think they are not important, but they can become very significant.
0: Cool. So how are you giving back to community?
1: Well, because of me personally and our family, right, we have a long history with multi multifamily from investing as well as financing side. And through that, we have seen a lot of people falling on hard times, not because of laziness, right, because that's a very different thing if someone is has a hard time because they're lazy, but because they just had bad, luck. Why maybe they had health issues, they lost a job, then the mother lost a job, both uh, earners lost a job, and that's uh, one of the reasons why we actively support uh, a local homeless shelter that it's uh, called the a Inn that specifically helps families, obviously, as a homeless shelter to give them a safe place and a roof over their head and food, but uh, their focus is less on just oh here you now have a shelter but the whole program is geared towards them getting back on track as quickly as possible so they assist them with finding jobs giving them training so essentially uh, reducing the time someone is dependent on the government and get back to a independent life as quickly as possible yeah
0: that is awesome so how can listeners can connect with
1: you The easiest is by email or phone, right? My email address is Anton, A-N-T-O-N at peakfinancing.com. And my direct business number is 972-725-7878.
0: Thank you, Anton. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much, Rama, for having me on. If you like the show, please
0: subscribe, share, rate, and review. And if you want to connect with me, please send me a message, info at ushacapital.com. Thank you for listening. Creating Wealth Through Passive Apartment Investing Podcast. I hope you learned something from the show. See you in the next episode. Thank you. Any information provided from these shows are educational purpose only. As always, please consult with your own CPA, legal and financial advisor before investing.